as the kids are heading out, um, as a way of entering into our scripture today, I want to ask a question that I've asked before, but I, I, I turn it over a lot in my mind, and so it's, I think it's one that just keeps coming up. And the question is, in the midst of this bigger, big and much bigger world in which we live, it's increasing to grow, and in the midst of our busy lives, what connects us to each other? What holds us together as a people? In the midst of all of our diversity, our differences, what holds us together as a people? What connects us to each other? Like me, you probably have noticed that in the last two decades, the ex with the expanding use of the internet, social networking has become the predominant means for human interaction in many parts of the world. Whether it's sharing photos on Instagram, posting one's resume or resourcing employment opportunities on LinkedIn, exchanging brief videos via Snapchat, or just accessing the over one billion people now using Facebook, we've witnessed the increasing desire of people to stay connected, to be in community with others. And as we've talked about before, surprisingly, despite the growing number of technological innovations and outlets, and there are more always coming, many of us feel more isolated from our neighbors, distant from our families, and superficial in terms of our friendships than ever before. As useful as social networking over the internet can be, texting someone isn't the same as hearing the sound of their voice. A conversation via screen, even if we call it FaceTime, doesn't have the same impact as being able to reach out and touch that person. A virtual like or a posted comment isn't as meaningful as experiencing a smile, a nod of affirmation, or that feedback in person. This morning, as we return to the letters of Peter, we're going to be profoundly reminded of what truly connects us, not only to each other, but also to the God who created us. We've already, if you've been with us so far, we've already been assured by Peter of our identity and our inheritance in Christ. We are children of our Heavenly Father who have been empowered by the assurance that the grace that brought us into this world, that raised us from the dead, from, the, from death due to our broken, flawed, and wayward lives, is transforming us and will mature us and lead us into the new life that is eternal. Out of this assurance, Peter has gone further. He's invited and challenged us to live responsively. Out of the forgiveness and salvation that are ours, thanks to Jesus. As we saw last week and the week before, Peter calls us to put aside the habits and dispositions of our former way of life, to set our minds on hope, to become holy, to love fully, and to crave the fruit, the pure spiritual milk of our new life in Christ. As we continue on in Peter, he will now assure us or return to this issue of identity. I want us to listen as we heard Scripture read this morning as he further outlines how our sense of purpose and belonging, what we build in this life, the very place we call home, is shaped by the loving and saving work of Jesus Christ. So I'd like us to open up our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as Captain comes forward, he's going to read to us from starting with verse 4 all the way to verse 10. Hello. Today's verse can be found in page 851 on your pew Bible. 
First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the uh, praises of who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Cap. Keep those Bibles open. Because Peter is returning back to something he's talked about. He's told us already in, in this letter. He's already told us about who Jesus is, but he's going to go deeper. He's going to go deeper in, in describing and in us understanding the person of Christ. If you were with us last week, Peter challenged us through the word to consider in, in what he calls us to put aside and to take on whether we've tasted the real thing. Whether we've experienced in our life more than the words of Christ, more than the ideas or the example of Jesus, whether we've encountered the living person of Jesus Christ. And this is right where Peter goes next. As he, as he writes, as you come to him, the living stone. Who is Jesus? Jesus is, Peter says, the living stone. I don't know if that catches your attention when Peter writes it, that Jesus is the living stone. Because when I read that, I stop and I think, you know, nothing is more inanimate or lifeless than a rock. We have this expression, cold as stone, which reflects this idea of death. So to talk of Jesus as being a rock or a stone, the living stone, what Peter is getting at is Jesus is the one who conquers, is raised from the dead. Jesus is the contradiction in terms. Jesus is the living stone. This imagery also relates back to the experience, if you remember it, of Israel finding themselves in the wilderness without water. And then at the Lord's direction, Moses strikes the rock. I'm going to pause for a second. Does that story ever, did you ever scratch your head at that? Who expects water from a rock? I mean, you're in the wilderness, find a plant, open it up, water coming out of that, but God tells Moses to strike a rock. And again, despite what would seem to make sense, out comes water, life, salvation. Peter, in describing Jesus as the living stone, is saying that Jesus is more than a pet rock. Remember those? Anyone, is anyone old enough to remember pet rocks? People actually bought these things, right? You know, you buy a rock that was all decorated. And it was great to have a, a rock as a pet because it just did whatever you told it to, right? It didn't speak back. It was the best pet ever, right? But Jesus is not a pet rock. Peter, in describing Jesus as the living stone, is saying Jesus is the source of our life. As you come to him, he writes, Jesus, like water, is something we need again and again. 
Think about it. In your lifetime, you know, you came into this world and after you issued your first cry, you didn't take some, just one big gulp of water and then go the rest of your life without drinking. We can't survive long without water. And Peter is making the point that we can't survive at all without Jesus. Like water, we need Jesus every day to survive, to receive life, to thrive, to grow. Jesus is the living stone, but Peter pushes forward and says Jesus is the cornerstone. If we know anything about ancient architecture, you maybe have heard this before mentioned in other sermons or Bible studies. Ancient architecture, they built their buildings. When they built their buildings, they didn't lay cement slabs as their foundation. Instead, they actually hewed out massive stones. I got to go to Israel a couple of years ago and I got to see and I could take you with me. Still today, we could go to, the, to see the cornerstone from the temple at the southeast corner in Jerusalem. And that cornerstone is 39 feet long, it's eight feet wide, it's three and a half feet tall, and it weighs 80 tons. And for all that, that's not even the biggest one. The cornerstone supports the whole structure. It's the reference point for the entire building. It provides symmetry, it bonds the walls together. It sets the angles and the directions for all sides of the structure. If any of the sides are off, the whole project is skewed. If the cornerstone is not cut perfectly, then the stones are not laid right, and this leads to the eventual inward or outward collapse of the building. Peter, in describing Jesus as the cornerstone, is emphasizing the stability of Christ as the foundation of our lives. I mentioned this previously in this sermon series, this, and it's a very subtle shift, but it's an important one. Many of us think that following Jesus is about building our lives around Jesus. But the Bible, Peter in his letters, doesn't call us to build our lives around Jesus. He very explicitly here says that our hope is built on nothing less, as we sing, than Jesus Christ's righteousness. Christ is the solid rock upon which we stand. Jesus as the foundation or cornerstone means Jesus isn't just another brick in the wall of our lives. The whole of our existence depends upon him. That means, if you want to picture it, that, we, that means we lean the full weight of our life into Jesus. He's our support. He's our reference point. We look to, we rely on Jesus in the midst of all the angles, the different directions that life can take. Jesus is the cornerstone. But Jesus is also the capstone. Now, if you have your Bibles open and you look down there, you won't find that word capstone in the NIV translation. But here's the interesting thing. The Greek word that's used here to describe Jesus as the cornerstone is also interchangeable with the word capstone. Cornerstone, capstone. And this is significant for me because the cornerstone, a cornerstone is not the same thing as a capstone. But both, I think, apply as Peter describes Jesus. The capstone, also known as the headstone or the keystone, is the stone on top. Rather than the first stone, it's the last stone to be put in place. If you will, think of the center stone in an arch, which supports the other stones. If you take out the keystone, the arch collapses. This is the idea that Peter's getting at, I think, by having this also be a, a way to describe Christ as the capstone. Peter says specifically, the capstone was rejected by the builders. What he wants us to picture is this stone left amongst the rubble that no one has found an obvious place for in the framework of the building. This stone that no one has found an obvious place for becomes the capstone, meaning while no one has found a place for it in the structure of the building, it ends up becoming the very stone needed to finish the structure to complete its support. The implication of this imagery is that we can start and we should start with Jesus as the foundation 
stone, the cornerstone that we build our lives on him. However, if we go through life, if we neglect the stone of Christ, we will discover at the end that he is the missing piece in our life. And I, I think this relates to, at least in my experience pastorally, why I, why I, I, I find that it's m- many people who are nagged by this sense of unfinished business. They've accomplished much in their lives, and yet they're still just nagged by the sense of something unfinished. People who come to that I've encountered who are plagued in the midst of seemingly great contentment by a sense of incompleteness, who long for wholeness, it's in that moment they find Jesus is the fulfillment, the answer to what's missing. I think in the two uses of this word, Jesus is the cornerstone and Jesus is the capstone, we have a beautiful reflection of the witness of the whole of Scripture. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus will be referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. And this fits with this idea of cornerstone and capstone. What Peter is describing for us is that the distance between Jesus' first coming, in which he reveals himself to be the foundation of everything, and his second coming, in which he presents himself as the completion of all things. The alpha and the omega, the cornerstone and the capstone. But if you're paying attention, if those Bibles are open, Jesus, uh, Peter goes on to describe Jesus also as the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone. A stone, he writes, that causes men to stumble and a rock which makes men fall. I'm not very good with my hands. I've confessed that before. I'm not a builder in that sense. But I do know this, because I think this is common sense. With any building project, you've got to start with the right foundation. You've got to start with the right foundation, and you've got to build, you've got to finish on that foundation. This is common sense. I mean, we could try to build our lives on other foundations. We can attempt to finish what's been started with other materials, but you're going to run into trouble. And many of us, many of us, this is a a very subtle problem, a temptation that we have. Many of us, we can try to build our lives on other things. We can try to build our lives on our parents. We can try to build our lives on our spouses, build our lives on our children, our friends, our heroes, our careers, our wealth, our talent, our resources. We can even start with the foundation of Christ and then look to those things to complete our lives. But here's the thing, nothing else can carry the load of this world. Eventually, everything else your parents, your children, your spouse, your career, it will crumble and collapse because no one else, nothing else can bear the weight of your life except Jesus. And and, and relationally, many of the problems we have is we are looking for other people in our lives to bear the weight of our life. We would never express it this way, but whether it's our parents or our kids or our spouse, we're looking for them to be what only Jesus can be. They can't, they can't carry, they can't bear the weight of our lives. Now, again, this, this idea may strike us as odd. I mean, we may, we, some of us, you know, we, we, we might step back and say, you know, God should build this world, God should build his kingdom, his church, on good people. People who care for others. People who seem reliable and earnest. Many of us position ourselves as, well, God couldn't be building with me. I mean, I'm a part of it, but I, you know, I'm watching. But God wouldn't want to build on me. He should build more on good people. People who care for others. People who are more reliable and earnest. People who are more, who, who are more dedicated to God's mission. People who have more of the right heart and mind. And I'll give you a, I've, I've mentioned this many a time, but it's a great practical example of this. I've not always been a pastor, as you know, and yet increasingly, when I encounter people, people will treat me differently because I'm a pastor. And I'm not just talking about my role. They'll say things like, well, will you pray for me? Because if I know if you pray for me, then God's really going to listen because you've got a direct line with God. 
You can come into my office. I don't got the red phone in there. I don't have it. I don't. Or people will say things like, well, if you come and if you show up, then that house, that's going to be different. And, and, and we project further. Well, God's, you know, God's building his kingdom not on people like me, but on pastors and missionaries, you know, people who are serving like that. You're not going to find a scriptural back, backing that up. Because here's the thing. When, we, when we, we twist that to say, well, God should build his kingdom, his church, this world on good people. This sounds good but it ignores the truth that applies to everyone, including me, especially me, our fallibility, our brokenness, our flaws. People change, right? People can slip and fall. They can slip and fall in their focus. They can shift their direction. They can lose interest and dedication. I invite you to just think for a moment. Think about any organization or company founded on a human being. Any organization or company founded on a human being, wherever your mind takes you in this, And think about, as you think about that company or organization, the fact that people change. People die. And when people, there's a change in people, what happens to any organization or company? There's a change in direction. The value and the vision of the founder gets lost or abandoned or reimagined. Can can we really together think of any organization or company built on a human being that's had a staying power beyond a couple hundred years? (coughs) Jesus is the only perfectly dependable, unchanging foundation. He will not shift or change direction as time passes. He will not crack under the pressure of history or what we try to make him. And we've tried to make Jesus a lot of things in the history of the church. We've tried to import a lot of things onto Jesus or or put him in different boxes. And yet what's compelling is despite that, and it continues, the purity, what's compelling about Jesus, what draws people to him, endures despite that. And this is because, as the scriptures say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when Peter talks about Jesus being a stumbling stone, he's acknowledging that reality. But on the negative side, Jesus is laid across the path of humanity. Whoever you are, wherever you live, however you live, there's no stepping over or bypassing Jesus to build a better future. Peter is making a really extreme claim that we either build our lives on him or we repeatedly stumble over him in trying to build another way. And many of us have very, very swollen toes. Is Jesus both the foundation of our lives, the one we build our lives on, and the conclusion of our lives, all that matters, all we cling to when everything else falls away, is Jesus both the foundation and conclusion of our lives? Is it where we start and is, it, is he where we end? And for many of us, you find out the reality of if Jesus is the conclusion of your life when things start getting stripped away. It is one of the, I've shared this before too, one of the greatest privileges and blessings as a pastor to be present at the most significant stages of life for people. And I think a lot about when we pass from this life into the next. And it is overwhelming. It, is, it, is, it ministers to me. It, it instructs me to see people who have built their lives on Jesus at the conclusion of their lives as everything is being stripped away, whether that's health that has declined, whether that's their, you know, confronting the reality that certain things that didn't happen in their lives or things that didn't take place, all of that is falling away and they simply are at peace. They let it go because at the end of the day, what matters is their relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus knows them and that they know Christ and that they have seeked to just give everything to him. It's beautiful. 
I, I, I want to take you with me like, to, to see it as a silent observer. And I also want you to see the exact opposite. How hard, how devastating it is to see people who say they have built their life on Jesus Christ at the conclusion when things are being stripped away, holding on. Holding on and not able to let go. And in that moment, seeing them struggle and fight and cry and not to know that they don't need to struggle, they don't need to hold on, that even when eventually, as we all do, we let go, Jesus is there. Jesus is still there. Are we building our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ? And is Jesus the conclusion? All that matters, all we cling to when everything else falls away. As I said before, the exclusivity of this claim by Peter is simply offensive. It's offensive. There's no way around it. It was absurd to a Gentile back then when Peter was writing. Well, let me get this straight. My whole life, I'm sorry, everybody's life hangs on a convicted criminal a crucified Jew? It's absurd. It sounds as absurd now as it did back then. You want me to believe. You want me to believe that the foundation of my life rests on a crucified, wandering Jewish guy from Nazareth? And that whatever I do, whatever I accomplish, whatever I earn means nothing? Is nothing without him? And Peter says, yes. Yes. You see, this is a core theme in this letter for Peter. Who we are flows out of who Jesus is. Who we are flows out of who Jesus is. If we don't get this, if we don't accept it, embrace it, wrestle with it, then nothing else, the rest of what Peter is saying and telling us won't make sense. It will cut against the grain. Who we are flows out of who Jesus is. And so, if you have those Bibles open, out after talking about who Jesus is again, Peter naturally talks of who we are. And who are we? Peter says, first, we are living stones. My friends, we are the Lord's building materials. We are the Lord's building materials. We're not just a bunch of rocks lying on the ground. We have a purpose to fulfill, a unique part to play. We are what the Lord is forming and putting together. We're not bricks. Think about bricks. Bricks are all the same color, shape, and size. No, we are living stones. No two stones are alike. God blesses us with variety. And yet in the midst of that tremendous variety and diversity, where there is a place for all, through Christ, in Christ, we all fit together. We all fit together. We are God's building project, Peter writes. We are being built up into a spiritual house. This is so significant. For generations, centuries now, the church, and it still today, continues to wrestle with an identity crisis. The church wrestles with an identity crisis, even though you all probably know what I'm about to say. We all say it out loud, that the church is not the building. And yet, despite the fact that we say this, we struggle to live into that reality. Think about it. In our own world, and it's been this way for a long, long time, as the, we believe the church is floundering, as we want to bring people into the church, what's our emphasis on? Building bigger and better churches, different kinds of churches. Our emphasis is on the building. Our emphasis is on what we can build, the programs we can offer, the structures that we have. We've got a gym. We've got a playground. We've got this. We, we, we're like almost building our own community on a piece of property. And we're not hearing where Peter is saying what we know, that the church is not a building, even in our own world and life. And within the church that we're a part of, we look around and how do we assess if the church is, is, is growing? How do we assess 
If the church is in a healthy place, how many people here are here on Sunday morning? The church is not reflective of those who are here on Sunday morning. It matters, but this is not the end-all, be-all to define what the church is. How big is our budget? Is our budget going down? Is giving going down? Well, then the church isn't doing well. I mean, this is weird. This is almost unconsciously how we look at our health as the church. But notice Peter doesn't point to a static or fixed object. He doesn't write, we are a spiritual house. He says we're being built up into a spiritual house. He says we are living stones, and living means we're growing. We're a house that's continuing to grow and to change. And so the real measure of the church is not our attendance. It's not the size of our buildings and our programs. It's not how much giving there is. The real evidence of the health and growth of a church is that we're going deeper in God's word together, that we're seeing farther with God's eyes this world he's put us in, that we're reaching wider in our sharing of the love and grace that we've received. And as Peter's already told us, we're loving harder. We're loving sincerely, deeply, richly, not on a superficial level, but in the midst of the brokenness, the flaws, the pain and suffering of our lives. My friends, what Peter is saying is the relationship there and here, the vertical and the horizontal is the construction project. We're not individual bricks or temples. Peter re references only one home, one home. And the singularity of this underscores the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from the church. It's a little bit heady, but let me say it again. What Peter is saying when he doesn't talk about many, many different um, temples, many different houses, different bricks, but only one house. Peter and other scripture writers, Paul will say this, John will say it, is that our significance and purpose as followers of Christ cannot be realized apart from the church. And this is a word we need to hear today because more and more people, because the church is struggling, believe that they can follow Jesus outside of the church. You probably have people in your life who've said the very same thing. You maybe have flirted with that. And we can talk a lot more about this at another time, but what I will tell you is scripturally you have absolutely nothing that will support you in that. Nothing. We need to be a part of the church. You see, the stones in the building don't operate in isolation. Being built on Jesus means we're being built with each other. You can't love Jesus and not love the church. You've probably heard that before. You can't love Jesus and not love the church because Jesus died for the church. Jesus, we, we get very individualistic. Well, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. He did, but we miss the bigger picture. Jesus didn't just die for you in isolation or me in isolation. He died for this grand building project that God is doing. The glory of salvation that we celebrate, that we savor, is in the depth of the individual and the corporate experience. To push this further, Peter goes, we are a royal priesthood. Notice again, again the emphasis on relationship. Now, I don't know if this made you stop. Peter says we're a holy priesthood, and then if you go down a little bit, he says we are a royal priesthood. When you see royal priesthood, that should make you stop. Why? Because if you, and if you, don't, if you didn't know this, I'm sharing it with you now, this is sort of, again, another contradiction in terms. Previously, it was impossible to be a royal priest. Why was that? Well, because there was, in the Bible previously, there's been this sharp demarcation between royalty and the priesthood. If you know something about your Bible, you know that when Israel was formed as a nation, royalty came from Judah, 
And the priesthood came from the line of Levi. You couldn't be a royal priest. There was this separation. To further emphasize this, you read in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, one of the kings of Judah, not one of the good ones, Uzziah, who actually tried to challenge the separation once. Uzziah was a king, and he presumed to offer incense in the temple to act like a priest. And he was judged severely for it. So how can Peter write that we are a royal priesthood? I, I, I find this so awesome, so I'm going to get a little excited. Because what Peter is telling us is that our status as a royal priesthood who God is making us is not based on the old order, the way of Aaron. It's based on the new order of Melchizedek. And if you've never heard the name Melchizedek or you don't remember it, Melchizedek is someone that Abraham encounters in the book of Genesis. And later on in the New Testament, in the letter to the Hebrews, this is what the writer will underscore, that we are part of the line of Melchizedek. And here's the thing you need to know about Melchizedek, different from Aaron. Melchizedek, in Genesis, when he encounters Abraham, we're told is both a king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. Make your head explode a little bit. We can talk about this maybe if you come for breakfast next week. A lot of people think Melchizedek is Jesus coming at that time to Abraham. That's the order that we come from. We come from the line of Christ and therefore we can be royalty and priests at the same time. What is a priest? A priest, to put it simply, is a bridge builder. A priest is someone who facilitates access to and communication with God. How does a priest do this? We could get really detailed and intricate, but we don't have to. How does a priest facilitate access to and help others to communicate with God? Two ways that a priest does this. By bearing the burdens of the people. A priest facilitates access to and communication with God by bearing the burdens of the people, leaning into them, helping them to shoulder their burdens. Paul will write elsewhere, we fulfill the law of Christ when we lift up each other's burdens. So that's one way, by bearing the burdens of the people, but also by bringing blessing to the people. Reflecting God's presence, God's engagement, Paul writes elsewhere, complimenting Peter, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We bring God's healing word and touch to a broken world. Beloved, we are priests. Reformation Sunday is next week, as I mentioned. And one of the things we celebrate is this idea that we're the priesthood of all believers. It's complimenting what Peter's saying. We are priests. We are bridge builders. Not just pastors. Not just missionaries. Not just the good people. All of us. We are bridge builders bearing the burdens of people and bringing blessing, the blessing of God to people. And you know what that means? If we understand what what it means to be a priest, our calling, it means that we must genuinely know the people that God has placed around us. We must genuinely know the the people that God has put in our lives. And that means that we've got to spend time with them. Not superficial time, time where we go deeper. That means we've got to invite them into our lives into the reality of our lives. We can't bear each other's burdens and bring the blessing of God unless we're willing to be that vulnerable, unless we're willing to be that transparent. Bearing each other's burdens and bringing the blessing in many ways begins and ends, but it's not, doesn't stop with, it begins and ends, but doesn't stop with prayer. And I'm going to use that as the smallest of examples because in the same way that many of us struggle with our identity as priests, many of us struggle with prayer. We talk about this a lot. I can't tell you how many people I encounter who say, and again, this gets back to, well, you're the pastor, you pray, or the really good people, they pray. 
I can't pray. I don't have the words. I don't have the experience. I don't have the knowledge. I don't know what to say. And as well-intentioned as that is to say, it's feeding into exactly what we're talking about here. Praying for other people is not complicated. It's not hard. Praying for another person is simply focusing on that person. Focusing on that person at the expense of yourself. Focusing on that person and truly listening to that person. Listening. And how many of us crave for someone to actually listen to us? And you're focusing and listening to that person. And as you're listening to what they're saying, you're also listening. You're becoming attentive to what God is doing. And praying is reflecting back to God what we are hearing, seeing, and sensing. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I look at every single one of you, and you are capable of doing this. The reality is, it's not that it's hard, it's scary. It's scary to be that vulnerable. It's scary to be that honest. It's scary to step out in faith. We might stub our toe. We might put our foot in our mouth. And at the end of the day, part of our fear comes from, we think all of this has to come from our own power. And it doesn't. It comes from our faith. It comes from leaning upon the foundation stone, the cornerstone, and trusting the capstone that will complete the work that we are called to as priests. Peter pushes it by saying we're a holy priesthood that offers sacrifices. He says we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The good news is we're not offering lamb and goats. We're not offering animals. Again, it's about relationship. We're offering ourselves. It's about self-sacrifice like Jesus. But here's even better news. It's not literal death on a cross. Jesus is taking care of that for us. Peter is saying when he talks about us as priests offering spiritual sacrifices, these actions that are performed at the expense of ourself for the benefit of others. And if you listen carefully as we go through the remainder of this letter, Peter is going to unpack that idea of spiritual sacrifice. He's going to give us specific and practical examples of spiritual sacrifices throughout the remainder of this letter. But for right now, he gives us three things that can kind of help us to even get a sense of what spiritual sacrifices are like. What does this look like? He says that we have been made priests. We are offering spiritual sacrifices. And one of the ways of understanding that is declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Offering spiritual sacrifices for us as priests means praising God. Not just here. We know when we come here we're supposed to praise God, but praising God outside of here in our lives, pointing to the light, focusing on the light. Beloved, how many of us outside of here are praising God in our lives versus being caught up in complaining, being caught up in ranting and raving about why isn't it like this and it shouldn't be like that and I think this is better. And think about what all ranting, raving, and complaining it is. We're focusing on who? Ourselves. Our frustrations, our, 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 our perspective, which we think is better. And Peter says, no, we are priests and we offer spiritual sacrifices by instead of focusing on ourselves, joining in all the complaining, the ranting and the raving, praising God in the midst of a world of darkness, pointing to the light, pointing to the light that drew us out of darkness, praising God. That means lifting God up. And when we lift God up, it's amazing. When we lift God up in our daily lives, we cannot help but lift others up. And that's significant because when we complain and when we rant and we rave, typically if we then take the light of Christ in that, in that model, what we do is we shine the light on, people's, on people like it's in their face, like a flashlight. 
This is why you're in darkness, my friend. This is where you're screwing up. This is where you're living wrong. This is why this is happening in your life. And what Peter gives us here is a new meaning to calling out another person, right? When we think about calling out another person, we're giving them the truth. We're setting them straight. But Peter says, no, call out people by pulling them out of darkness and directing them to the light. Not by shining the light in their face, but literally giving them your hand and leading them into the light that sets them free. He goes on. It's so, I get very moved by this. He writes, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Our spiritual sacrifice, one of our spiritual sacrifices is including everyone. It means practicing acceptance and promoting belonging. And we live in a world where more and more we have litmus tests, lines. Well, we can't do that because those people aren't living the way that people who are people of God should live. But what we miss, where we jump ahead, is we miss what Peter has said here. We became a people who were not a people when we were rebelling and rejecting against God. It's not like all of a sudden we turned things around and God said, all right, you're in. In the midst of our own rebellion, in the midst of our own rejection, we who were not a people became a people. And that means we should include everyone is welcome. Now, does that mean that everyone stays the way that they are or there are not things that need to be addressed in their lives or things that God's doing? No, but that's where we continue to hold each other accountable to the continued work that God is doing. But we don't bar the door. We don't shut people out. Once you had not received mercy, Peter goes on, but now you have received mercy. Spiritual sacrifice is offering mercy to other people, forgiveness. And, and it's not just to say, pray to God, God will forgive you. Look to Jesus, Jesus will forgive you. Peter is pushing us further. He's saying, no, we literally are the ones in the name of God on behalf of Christ through the power of the Spirit that are extending mercy, granting forgiveness to other people. The spiritual sacrifice is literally falling on our sword, falling, putting aside ourselves and extending and modeling and practicing this very forgiveness and mercy we've received in Christ. Ask yourself, do we tell people that Jesus will forgive them, that God will forgive them while we're still nursing a grudge? Well, I'm not gonna deal with you, but Jesus might, God might. Do we fixate on getting even? Even if it's not some intricate plan of vengeance, do we, sit by, get, we fixate on getting even by basically saying, well, I'm not going to let you back in. I'm not going to extend to you beyond this place until you prove, until you do, you make up for what you've done. My friends, if God lived by that standard, we wouldn't be here right now. We would not have been people who have received mercy. That sacrifice of, well, wait a second. That means you, I gotta put, I'm putting myself out there again? I gotta trust? I'm gonna get hurt? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And as Peter has pointed to, the hurts, and I don't take them lightly. I experience them myself. I cause them too. The wounds that we experience are following Christ. This is part of dying to ourselves. Dying to ourselves so that we can become together this spiritual house that God is building. But this is the best part. If you really look at this carefully, we are being built up into more than a spiritual house. Peter doesn't say it explicitly because he doesn't have to. If you look at him talking about living stones, holy and royal priesthood, spiritual sacrifices, what Peter really is saying is we are specifically being made into the temple of the Lord. Paul, elsewhere, will just come right out and say it. You are the temple of the Lord. 
Think about that for a second. We are being built up into the place where God dwells. We are being built up into the place where our Father's presence is found. We are being built up into the place where Jesus is encountered as more than an idea or an example, where Jesus is encountered by other people as flesh and blood with skin on through us. We are being built up into a place where the Spirit is living. And it's more than signs and wonders. We're being built up into a place where people see relationships and communities changed, transformed, and healthy. My friends, when we as the church aren't in it for ourselves, for our own comfort, when we build our lives on Jesus, when we are being built up together by Jesus, we become God's model home. Proclaiming to a watching world just how glorious, just how real, just how life-changing Jesus is. When we, in the midst of our normal routines with our families, in our jobs, and among our friends, become priests, bridge builders, not only pointing to the light, but reflecting the light of Christ through acts of compassion and mercy at the expense of ourselves, but for the benefit of others, we become, we become what Jesus proclaimed the temple was always intended to be. Do you remember this? We studied it not that long ago in Mark. Jesus came and cleansed the temple. Why did he cleanse the temple? Why did he get so upset? Because the temple was not what it was intended to be. It was intended to be, Jesus says, a house of prayer for all the nations. That is what God is making us into, a house of prayer for all the nations. We are not to be a den of robbers and thieves. And let me tell you, a house like that, a people like that, Sacrifices like that can change a neighborhood, can transform a city, can heal a nation. They'll recreate the world. What is our life together proclaiming? What is our life together proclaiming? If we are more than a spiritual house, if we are specifically being made into the temple, the place where God dwells, are we reflecting the goodness and the glory of God in our life together? Are we reflecting the goodness and glory of God in our life together? And as you're thinking about that question, you might be just thinking about here and now, but it's bigger than that. What Peter is pointing to is so much bigger than what happens here on a Sunday or anytime we bring people to 6931 Edinger Avenue. Peter is asking, are we reflecting the goodness and glory of God in our life together, in our homes, in our places of work, and in our various social spaces? If someone could shadow your life for a day, the places you go, the things you do, the way you interact with others, would they walk away at the end of that day thinking, wow, God lives here if someone was wrestling with questions of faith, was looking for a bridge to meet Jesus personally, if they could listen into your conversations with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, with your friends, would they, in listening in on those conversations, find a bridge? Would they experience the light, the hope, the presence of the risen Christ? Or would all they find is burned bridges, dead ends, cynicism, pessimism, frustration and anger. If someone showed up at your door, came into your home, your social space unannounced, and I underscore unannounced, 
I'm as good as the rest of you at putting my house together when I know people are coming over. I know how to throw on a clean shirt when someone's knocking at my door. But if someone showed up at your door, came into your house, your social space, unannounced and unexpectedly, would they be welcome? Would they be welcome? And would they walk away? Walk away feeling alive, refreshed and connected with the Holy Spirit. What is our life together proclaiming? Are we reflecting the goodness, the glory, the love, the justice, the mercy, the forgiveness of God in our life together? <sighs> As we wrestle with our acute awareness of our separation and isolation in this world, Peter has just shared with us the divine blueprints for a home of our own, a house for all people. And here's, again, in the end, there's only two building projects. Please hear this. In the end, there are only two building projects. There's the spiritual house, the temple of the Lord, in which Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation we build upon, and the conclusion, the reflection of, that all of our lives have been building towards. Or there's the side project. In all its shapes, sizes, and varieties, the side project of the builders who reject Christ who deem Jesus unfilled to build their lives upon, who try to build their lives around Jesus, for whom Jesus becomes an obstacle and a stumbling stone. Despite all their perceived progress, even though from the outside what they are building looks impressive, all the construction projects of this world, apart from Jesus, will remain empty and unfinished. They will not stand the test of eternity. They will all crumble and fall to ruin. We can't compete with this. Why would you want to? How can we compete? Why would you want to compete with an extreme home makeover that's been in the planning stages from the very beginning of creation? Rising before us, in and through us, is a building project so majestic, it's bigger than any residence or shelter constructed before. This magnificent edifice, edifice is neither a physical home nor a geographical place of worship as much as it, is, as it is a relationship, an assembly, a fellowship of people whom the Lord has raised from the dead and gathered to himself. It is the temple of the Lord built not with human hands, but amazingly constructed through the salvation of human lives. Rocks that cried out and became living stones, lost wayfaring strangers who became children of God. And what's more, What's amazing is this architectural masterpiece built on a foundation rejected by humanity. This, this architectural masterpiece which towers over the greatest building projects and schools of thought ever accomplished in all human history, it isn't finished yet. The house of God is growing in size as more and more people come to discover the missing piece, the foundation of their lives in the living stone that is Jesus Christ. But the temple of the Lord is also growing in that we are being built up. We who form the house as living stones are changing shape and being fit together as we become a means of blessing, as we become more like Jesus. This structure will only be complete when the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of God 
is revealed in all its glory. When what, what was once a beacon in the night casts away the darkness once and for all by covering the face of the earth to become a place of homecoming for all people and all nations. If you think I'm making this up, read the end of the book of Revelation. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she beautiful? Aren't you beautiful? Aren't we beautiful? Not thanks to our own makeup, not thanks to our own beauty routines, thanks to the gracious saving work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, oh my God, let us stand in awe not only of what God is constructing, but let it be impressed upon us as incredible as it is. And it is incredible that we as the church are the very structure God is building. As his disciples, Jesus calls us his friends. He invites us to follow him. But what he has in mind for us is to become more than a loose string of contacts, a social network held together by ritual, tradition, stages of life, or pictures we post. According to Peter, through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone upon which all creation stands and falls, we are being connected together as living stones. We are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy and royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let us become together just who we are in Christ. A refuge for the homeless. A house of prayer for all the nations. The epicenter of spiritual sacrifices. Sacrifices that manifest faith, hope, and love. A people who extend to all persons all persons, I don't care who they are, all persons, the freedom of forgiveness and the unconditional love that are ours, thanks to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Right on.